0: sit down yet the evidence is all around i tell you i'm struck in my spirit this morning god is good amen somebody say all the time all the time you know i'm just struck this morning listening to our worship team worship god and lead us in worship and would you just take a minute and here's the evidence i want us to see this morning The evidence that God's spirit is on the move in this city, in this congregation, on your street, in your neighborhood. Just turn around and slowly just take in the faces around the room, everybody. Just just look at the evidence around this room. Look at the evidence. And you'll see something that just doesn't happen that often, particularly in the church worldwide, right? The evidence is all around. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just grateful to God today uh, in my poor spirit that he is present among us. Let's, let's pray and, and welcome to all of you online, too. I'm looking at the camera. I'm looking at you at home. But, you know, Grace City is one of those churches that it's hard to experience Grace City online, isn't it? Because you can't turn and, and look at the evidence. You only got your own couch. Uh, and I'm glad you're online. You are so welcome. But I encourage you. And challenge you to come out starting next Sunday it is beautiful there's a breeze blowing it's safe it's wonderful right um, and I, I want you to see the same evidence so let's pray together father we're grateful today that the evidence is all around and the atmosphere is changing not because of who we are not because we just want to be nice and good people although that's no small thing but father the atmosphere is changing because your Holy Spirit is doing a great work in our homes in our souls, in our streets, in our neighborhoods. Father, we just want to walk with you in that. We want to surrender and walk with you in that so that on earth as it is in heaven becomes a construct that we can live by to the day we go to heaven and be with you. So, Father, we pray that your spirit will lead us on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the Lord's people said... You may be seated in his presence, you may be seated at home on your couch, although you probably weren't standing. I don't stand when I'm at home watching, so I get that. Hey, we have, um, we have so many good things going on today. Uh, right after this, our flavor group summation, if you are registered for that, we'll head over there uh, right after service today. Only if you're registered, uh, because you are prepared for that. We're preaching from the series title, uh, The Power of a Story, and uh, that's maybe one of our best titles um, uh, for all the series we've had in 12 years, The Power of a Story. And the scripture, right, is, is um, a big story, and it's a series of stories. Last week, we talked about Zacchaeus, uh, and but this week, we're going to go to the big, the big picture. And I, I want you to have your Bibles open because... There's so much I'm going to talk about, much of it familiar, if you have any fluency at all with scripture, and many of you have for, since you were children. But, um, so have your Bibles on your phones at home, have your Bibles open, have them open, and you can first turn to Genesis 1, we're going to be in Genesis 1, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to be in Revelation. We're, going to, we're basically reading through the entire Bible today. So if our reader would come up, uh, we have a year to, no I'm just kidding, we're new. To- Hey, Gray City, in my undergrad years, I was not at all shy about hitchhiking. That was kind of a thing back then. Uh, Back in the the 70s when I was in college. And uh, I I would tie my hair back. I'm dead serious. I had hair down to here in college. And uh, if you're good, one day I'll show you pictures of that. But um, I would hitchhike. Uh, And, you know, I went on long trips, short trips. I lived in Pittsburgh, and I would hitchhike back and forth to Penn State, which is in central Pennsylvania. I actually made it all the way to Chicago hitchhiking one time. I'm not advocating that for anybody, by the way. Um, Yeah, many moms are shaking their heads. No, don't don't tell my kid that kind of thing. But in the spirit of hitchhiking this morning, uh, we're going to take a trip to the ends of the earth uh, in space and in time. And I'm preaching from the title, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Kingdom. A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Kingdom. Now, if you remember my title from last work week, which was When Stories Collide, somebody, there's a story genre that's taking shape in my, in my titles. Anybody want to guess what that is? All right, keep, keep watching, because we'll come back in, in August with some more. But there's a genre to my story titles. But we're, we're preaching from A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Kingdom, and Scripture is our map, and we'll hitch a ride before we're done in a chariot, and we'll end our road trip uh, at the biggest uh, dance party under heaven. So I want you to climb aboard. I want everyone has a window seat. Stick out your thumb. Here we go. Or, or point your finger to the ground. Get a car's attention. Along the way, let the Holy Spirit open your minds. Your minds, I, I want to focus. Minds and hearts, of course, but I want our minds to discover just how we must delight in each other according to the Word of God. It's really not a choice. We must learn to delight in each other and discover God's kingdom power in what community means, and the scripture is going to open that up for us today. We have a lot of new astronauts in America over the last several weeks, don't we? Richard Branson and his crew aboard um, whatever that was called, and, and uh, 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 Jeff Bezos and his crew aboard uh, Blue Origin and and uh, SpaceX just got that's Elon Musk's group that it just got the contract to take us to Mars. Um, it's a wild time for new astronauts. Uh, my wife said, "Would you have gone on that?" I said, "Absolutely. I'd go. I'd go anywhere they'd want to fly me. That'd be awesome." Um, so, th- one of the things that that um, struck me is when they interviewed any of these crews that went up and saw the globe that from that perspective for the first time, they all talked about it changed my perspective, it changed my point of view, I, I see things differently as a result. And we might kind of sneer at that, and laugh at the billionaires going to space, I get that, but um, but every, you know, if you Google astronauts' reaction to their first trip into space, all the, the legit, ast- well, I shouldn't say, le- I guess they're all legit, but but the real, a- no, real bad, t- whatever, you know, the astronaut, the NASA, the, the Mercury, those guys, those um, guys. And ladies, if they all talk about how it changed them to see our globe from space. Uh, and, and you can read their words about it. It's, it's quite, quite esoteric. Now, the big picture of Scripture can have a similar impact on our minds if we just will get our hands around it. And we can. When it comes to Bible study, church, we're just not that good. And I confess as a pastor, that I'm not sure I've done a very good job at, at, over the years of giving us Bible study skill sets to really see both the big picture and the, the, uh, uh, the segments of exegesis that we need to be able to do. But one thing I do know, we are not very good at being consistent in our exegetical big picture of Scripture. Because, for instance, when, when Scripture poses paired opposites or dualities, and Scripture does this a lot, as you'll see... We love to just pick and choose how we will apply them in our lives. And some we kind of let go of because we sh- it's obvious. And others we go and we hammer each other with the things that we like and we let go of the things that we don't. And that is bad Bible study. Somebody say, bad Bible study. So we suffer from inconsistent application. For instance, when Paul teaches the dualities side-by-side in Ephesians um, 5 and Colossians 3, he teaches these three things, these three dualities side-by-side. Master-slave, parent-child, husband-wife. And when we take into account the big picture of all of Scripture, of course, we reject slavery. We don't think it's advocating for slavery. We recognize children's rights, and we're not advocating for children to remain obedient to parents long into their maturity. My kids would not like that if we did. But many many parts of the church still today neglect that larger exposition of the husband-wife, and and we hold on to male hierarchy in our culture because we happen to like that one, particularly men like that one. Bad Bible study. We do this in the Old Testament too, and that's where I want to begin. It's perhaps most evident in the very first chapter of our Bible in Genesis, so turn to that in your Bibles, turn there at home. And it's still our lack of capacity to be consistent in our exposition of Scripture still holds us back from growing our capacity for being robust kingdom ambassadors for inclusive human relationships. Let me show you why. So we're beginning at the beginning with with the map, the map of Scripture. And though the map is is vital, it's not our final destination, is it? Theology functions as a map informed by Scripture. It will help us move beyond the limited experience. See, so you, can, you can look out at the harbor, and you see it's your personal experience of the harbor and the boats, and it's lovely. But what will enlarge that is seeing a map of the harbor, and you'll see more when you see the map. Are you, are you with me? Scripture is a map for us, and it is, point one, it is the map we need. The map we need. Here's the first line of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And And, and you can see that on your screen, too, at home. As a parent... Corey, I would read to my kids these first words in their illustrated beginner's Bible, which I still have on the shelf at home. I would read these words over and over again because I was the kind of person, Ling, who started books from the beginning. And I'd read it over and over. Sue, of course, knew better. And Sue, the kids had fave stories that were the fave go-tos when we would open the Bible. If Cole, my son Cole, was choosing, we would read about the plagues of Egypt, especially the frogs. Always the frogs. Can we read about the frogs? If, if, uh, if they were all choosing, they loved that story where Jesus heals the blind man by spitting in the mud and putting the mud on his eyes. They just thought that was hilarious. And a guaranteed laugh party at my house would, would be when we read about Balaam's talking ass. Balaam's talking ass. That was a guaranteed laugh party. Um, but the power of stories is evident for children, can you say ass in a sermon? I don't know. It's online now, so there we go. But the creation story had the most iconic illustrations in this beginner's Bible. It had on the first page a dark globe representing chaos. It had a bright yellow sun. It had a ghostly moon and stars, bright birds, waves, mountains, forests, fish, animals, and a distinctly Caucasian red-headed Adam and Eve, which was ironic, but... Even more ironic, it had this smiling, friendly snake that looked like the, the golden retriever of the snake kingdom. It was very attractive snake and uh, very friendly in this fruit-filled garden. And I said, I don't think that's what that snake was really about, but anyway. So as you look at Genesis 1 in your Bibles, you will notice this series of paired opposites because the ancient Hebrew scholars tended to separate their world into opposites, into exclusions. And you, you don't have to go very far even out of Genesis 1 and w- where we see a series of them. You can see the kosher laws about foods that are acceptable and unacceptable. Lists that excluded one another are very common uh, in, the, in the early scriptures and throughout scripture. So it's not surprising, is it, that the creation account in Genesis 1, um, the Old Testament here breaks everything into dualities. Even in the children's Bible, Chinwe, the distinctions God made when creating the universe were obvious. Each bit of the world was broken into pairs and opposites. So if you were a kid who likes order and organization, the story of Genesis 1 is a great fit because there's a place for everything and everything's in its place. It's really easy. And then as you get older, you begin to look at it again and you see those paired opposites in the creation story and you realize that life, Angie, is leading to more complexities. There's more gray areas in these opposite poles of things. I mean, think about it for a minute as you look at Genesis 1 because land and sea are the only things mentioned about that but land and sea are not always distinct, are they? Because land and sea blend to wetlands and estuaries and marshes and vernal pools, which I learned when we were at North Bay what a vernal pool was. It, it blends to that line of water and sand when we're at the beach on vacation, and you love to, to walk along. They can't walk outside a camera, sorry. But you, you, walk, you walk along that line as, as water and earth come together, and you love it. Now, the creation account doesn't mention those blends, but, but they're there, aren't they? Night and day, for instance. You look at that in Genesis 1. Night and day collide Twice a day into the magic minutes of dusk and dawn, don't they? We don't say that they're not there because the scripture doesn't mention them. Plants and animals number, I did some research, number somewhere between 3 million and 30 million species. With spectacular blends. I mean, the tomato, the Supreme Court ruled in the 1890s about whether the tomato was a fruit or vegetable. It got that high. I mean, which, do you know? Sea life includes animals who have roots. Animals who have roots in the seafloor and plants in their in their uh, tissue. Land land life has walking trees. Did you know that? Land life even yields a mammal that lays eggs. That's weird. So these verses in Genesis one don't only mean fish and non-fish, they don't only mean day and night, they don't mean there's only land and water with no place where they blend together. I mean, imagine posting on one of your social media accounts this afternoon that because the Bible doesn't mention it, there is no such thing as a wetland. There's only land and sea. There's no such thing because the Bible says it. I believe it. God said it. I believe it. And in the QAnon universe, that would probably take off. It would be like the Flat Earth Society. Off it goes. Yeah, there's no such thing as a wetland. It's all been made up. Until you go to a wetland and get bit by something, Corey, as we did many times. These verses in God's universe, these verses in, 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 uh, in Genesis, invite us, church, into imagining and experiencing everything in between and beyond the paired opposites, beyond the dualities. And for the most part... For the most part, though we are increasingly poor stewards of our very diverse creation, amen, we are, and we're paying a price for it, we're we're poor stewards, but for the most part, I would say we all enjoy the cosmic, colorful, and sometimes comical blends of God's creation. We enjoy our rampant biodiversity that's all around us. We, we, We enjoy the robust shades of God's universe, Without those things, we would actually cease to exist. Certain species missing, and we'll cease too, right? We know this. It's, it's, it's so interwoven. I wonder sometimes if God, uh, if during those creation days in Genesis 1, if God didn't turn to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and they're both in Genesis 1, by the way. Come up and ask me if you want to spot them in Genesis 1. They're both there. But I wonder if God didn't hold a conversation sometimes and just turn to Jesus and the Holy Spirit and say, Hey, watch this. Boom. And, and, and they would all howl in laughter as the platypus appeared. Or they, they might shed common tears at the beauty of coral animals taking root in the seafloor to make a roof a reef. Or maybe they would marvel together, as all of us have done, at the, at that, as light and dark meet together twice a day in those magic minutes. Maybe they would do that. Imagine that. God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit having those kinds of conversations. Watch this. The author of Genesis 1, church, is using. this is where you get into good Bible study, is using a literary device to manifest the, the infinite diversity of creation into categories that we can easily understand. And Scripture even christens God, the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end, which implies his capacity to hold it all together from the ends and everything in between. That alpha and omega takes on so much bigger, broader things, doesn't it? As we read, therefore, days one through five of creation, we have little trouble enlarging on the rigid dualities we find there. We get it. All of us have been nodding our head as I go through it. We understand the Bible is not meant to be uh, a textbook on taxonomy, but rather God's Word, highlighting His intent to both create and corral the infinite diversity of creation. It is indescribable, indeed, as we sang this morning. But on the sixth day, on the sixth day, our delight to embrace diversity suffers a stroke, and we are paralyzed this day on our capacity to embrace the diversity of humankind in verse 27 take a look in Genesis humankind finally arrives on the sixth day it's another binary male and female he created them but here our enjoyment of God's blends and surprises and diversity for the most part it just loses steam for us Here we tend to hold fast to dualities and categories and learn the distinctly human but anti-divine habit to exclude and marginalize and in some cases dehumanize the different, the surprising, the others. And this human habit continues to this day, our human bent toward oppression and division, redlining and discrimination, wars and rumors of war, often in the name of God because they don't look like me. They don't think like me. They don't act like me. Therefore, there are another that I can reject. And God says, stop it. It's part of my creation. It's beautiful. And you need, for thriving, you need that. Just like you need the biodiversity, you need the human diversity. Just like the survival significance of God's biodiverse earth, God's image in our diverse humankind, it carries more height and breadth and weight and capacity to help us thrive than you can ever imagine. You want to thrive? Then get to know each other's stories. Come across those lines over and over and over again until you're so fluent with it, you forget why it even was a thing. So we have a map that shows the layout, but the map is not the end game. It is the journey now. So let's stick out our thumb. Everybody stick out their thumb. Stick out your thumb for me. We're going to hitchhike a ride on one of Jesus uh, with one of Jesus' second gen disciples by the name of Philip. He was a, a millennial Gen Xer back then uh, in the Jesus um, hierarchy of the church. Philip in the eighth chapter of Acts, and it's going to illustrate with a with a specific journey what we're talking about in Genesis 1. And this is because uh, we're hitchhiking for the ride of our lives, Jamon. It's the ride of our lives. The power in this story in Acts 8, it meant so much to me as a young Christian uh, at 14 years old because as a young believer, new in Christ, it boldly demonstrates that following Christ really does mean something different in this world. It's not the status quo anymore. Something is going on. The atmosphere is changing. And it's something that's healing and noble and whole and right. And I still find this fact illustrated in a story like this to be the most compelling reason to follow Christ. A lot of you can come do that story about why you, how you came to Jesus. I want to know why you're still with Jesus. For me, it's this kind of thing is why I still follow Christ because he still makes that kind of difference in our world. So we first find Philip preaching in Samaria in Acts 8, where we find signs and wonders and healings going on. It's a great place, the church is thriving, and God comes to him, and as so often occurs in our journey with Christ, God says, leave that great place that you're celebrating, and go take the desert road where I tell you to go. He tells him to take the desert road. Look at Acts 8:26 and further. The angel said to Philip, go south to the road. The desert road, Corey, <laughs> Nobody wants the desert road. It goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's still a desert road today, by the way. It's still fraught. The Spirit says, hit the road, Philip, the desert road. Verse 27, on the way he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. You're about to hitchhike a ride. That's not in the Scripture, but that's what happens. Great City, the divine is about to hitch a ride, And you and I are included in this story because the Spirit is calling us to do these same things today. The Holy Spirit here is making absolutely sure that Christendom will not begin as an institution institution of exclusion. Like everything else around it, it will not begin that way. And it could have. If you study the early church, we love to say, oh, we need to be like the early church. Be careful because there was a lot of fighting about excluding certain people. Paul and Peter went at it with their fists up. Well, metaphorically, over Gentiles' inclusion in the church. Paul had to beat Peter up on that one, and the Spirit had to give Peter dreams to get over himself. And Peter was the head of the church. Isn't God amazing? I mean, he pulls it all together. From Jewish law and tradition, the Ethiopian eunuch would be considered as unclean. He would be an utter alien to Philip and the founders of this new church. He was an other in every sense of the word. The eunuch had come over 500 miles from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship God. Though he would not have been allowed to enter the temple when he once he got to Jerusalem. Read Deuteronomy 23.1. I'll just say it for you. You don't have to look it up, but it'll be on your screen at home. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. You may not come in. Why? Well, he was a Gentile, he was from Africa, and though he was a Jewish convert, his sexual condition, his his skin tone, his ethnicity, his geographic location is so far removed from the center of of Jewish life. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Today, we make exclusions based on that for for even less than that, and we, we feel free to exclude people because of all those kinds of things. Powerful reasons for exclusion. And I don't want to be overly graphic, but if someone is going to, if is going to work for a queen, the eunuch uh, requirement would be, due to the influence and power of that position, that the male official would be castrated so that there's no possibility of impregnating the queen, becoming her lover, or anything like that. So if you think you give up a lot for your job, just think about the eunuch for a minute. But some men would do this, Corey, because for the power and resources and opportunities that the the office would offer. And for someone who has chosen the God of Israel as his God, not only are you ritually unclean according to the purity codes, you are considered a sellout because you've chosen to work for a pagan ruler and you've traded your sexuality and your identity for a position of influence. So the Deuteronomic law that we just read is embedded into the early thinking and practice of the people of God. It's passed down from generation to generation. But wait! But wait! One of the fascinating things about how Scripture works, our map works in informing us, lies in the inner dialogue you find in the text of Scriptures. That should cease to scare you. Good Bible study will allow you to investigate and dive in to the complexities and dialogue of Scripture. Watch this. When you go to Isaiah 56, the prophet Isaiah, and I'll just read it for you here, but the prophet Isaiah gives us a beautiful vision of inclusion for those such as eunuchs, specifically eunuchs, in precisely the way Deuteronomy describes their exclusion. So we have to stop and think about this. Open your minds. Here it is in Isaiah 56, for this is what the Lord says, verse 4, to the eunuchs who hold fast to my covenant, if you want to be mine... To them, I will give you an everlasting name that will endure forever. Will God be praised? Is your mind starting to open on this idea of putting our arms around each other even when they're not like us? In Isaiah's vision, not only is there a place for the Ethiopian eunuch, it's a prime place. But in the ancient Near East, such a man would at best be an outsider looking in. So the Holy Spirit in the early church says, Go to that chariot, Philip, and stay near it. And we know, church, that from now on, from the early church to this day, God will deliberately send us to one another. Deliberately send us to one another. He deliberately put Corey and I in each other's life. Deliber- He's deliberate about this. Are you open? He won't, he, he won't force you. We can walk around with blinders on forever. But when you open those blinders up and you say, God, where will you have me go? He will deliberately send you to one another in order to model the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, which we'll get to in a minute because that's where the party is. So Philip, anxious to hitch a ride because the Holy Spirit is basically yelling at him, and the Ethiopian eunuch, anxious to grow his understanding, they initiate sort of this mutual hitchhiking where the driver seeks out the passenger for help and the passenger seeks out the driver for help. Verse 30, Philip runs to the chariot. He hears the man reading Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless someone explains it? So he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. The hitchhiking has taken place. They are in the chariot. That would be a good title for a sermon, in the chariot. This is the passage. He was led like a sheep to slaughter. The eunuch said to Philip, who's he talking about? And Philip told him the good news about who? Jesus. The sheep led to slaughter. And that conversation takes place. Now look, you may be inclined to think, oh, isn't Philip awesome? He's reaching out to the marginalized. And that's how we often think about it, especially as white people. I get it. But this is not only about the Ethiopian eunuch needing what Philip has. Philip, too, needs to see and encounter God in a way that is just not possible without him moving toward the Ethiopian eunuch on purpose. Philip is going to learn things about what God is up to in this new church. And as his newest generation of disciples, he's going to lead the church in that way. Can you imagine what Philip's church would be like after this? It would probably be like Grace City in my mind. That's overpraised, but there it is. The church cannot thrive, Grace City. It cannot thrive without such encounters. This is why Grace City is inviting you to tell your story ten times and hear others ten times. God reveals himself to us perhaps most profoundly in this divided season through the gift of someone else's otherness. Somebody say otherness. It's a good word. And then finally, in this story, look at verse 36 and 38. On the road, they come to some water. The eunuch said, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized into this new church? And he gave orders to stop the chariot, and Philip baptized him. And so I ask all of us, what can stand in the way of this kind of reconciliation with God and with one another? What can stand in the way? Here's what can stand in the way to this day. We we like to use others, eunuchs metaphorically, but others who don't look, think, act like us. We like to use them to to separate rather than come together. We like to feel superior rather than to come alongside. That's what stands in the way. Don't let it stand in the way. Be the church in Baltimore that says, stop it, Baltimore. God shows, shows us the map that points toward the delight of human diversity in Genesis 1. And just like biodiversity that powers a healthy environment, creation design prescribes human diversity to empower human thriving. We can't thrive without each other. You're just going to be poorer if you don't have each other. I am poorer without you. I'm poorer without Corey and Rashima in my life. I'm poorer without you. I can get along, but I'm poorer gospel is never about hanging with people who look and think like you do. It's always about community and being side by side in the chariot with one or many who aren't like you. It's always relational. It's always across every line that would divide us. So informed by the map, we step out, we hitchhike on the road to faith, we get in the chariot, but where are we going? Where are we headed with all this? Well, it's always to the celestial city where a dance party is taking place. And with our eyes ultimately centered on Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, we move toward Our splendid destination. This is our final point. Our splendid destination. I'm not making this up. Just look briefly. You know this if you're fluent at all in Revelation. But look at the composition of heaven in Revelation 7 and the first part of verse 9. God loves the variety of his human creation. He loves it. There will be people from, it says, right here, all tribes, all nations, all languages at the party. Look around this room again. I'll bet you we have 35 languages in here. People from every ethnic group in the world will be in heaven. Heaven's not, and it's not colorblind. Can you, can you just drop that from your vocabulary forever and ever? Just drop it right now. If, if that's when you, I want to be colorblind. No, enjoy the color. Embrace the color. Corey has color that I don't have, and I love that about him. It's not about being blind to it. It's about like you would in a garden, enjoying every color. We have a garden of people. Heaven doesn't make us blind. Heaven features the very differences that that make us indescribably gorgeous. The indescribably gorgeous expression of creation design. So human thriving demands the same embrace of human diversity that we are likely to give to biodiversity. So as the worship team comes up, let me just say this and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. We are not good at seeing the big picture of Scripture and what God would have us do on earth as it is in heaven. Just, I'm not good at it, we're not good at it. We really pick what we like, and we stand on it. William James said it this way, a great many people think they are thinking and growing when they are merely rearranging their prejudices. That's a good challenge for you and me today. This, in our time, Grace City... This is a danger for the church, because there is great fear and division in the world. And fear can become a tipping point. People are unhappy, people are confused, and you and I can be light. We can be light, we can be salt. So the challenge today, Grace City, is to stick out your thumb, hitchhike a ride on somebody else's chariot. There's so many ways to do it. You can. Walk with us at We Are Us in the in the neighborhoods around the city. You can volunteer at Sharp Kids. You can join the next chapter of the flavor groups that goes on to to train us up and how we ought to delight in each other. You can soon we'll be going back to Nicaragua, it's opening back up. You can stand in the middle of the police and the crowds like Corey taught me to do years ago. Because all that tension is going to be there and you can be light. Share a meal this week with somebody and share your story and hear their story. That's a great way to start. At such a time like this, it seems natural and good to me as a pastor to ask these questions of us. What do we believe in? What must we fight for? And what must we fight against? I know one thing at Grace City that we all agree on. And if you're here, this is what you're signing up for. If you've been part of this church for any length of time, you know it. We lift up the diversity of God's human creation, and we agree with him that it is good. And we will fight for reconciliation across any lines that would divide us to reconcile people to God and to one another. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And I want you to sing with that atmosphere changing. Let's pray together. Father, the the problems facing our human family are deeply troubling in this time. We're confronted daily with our addiction to fear and anger and separation. Our hearts hurt, and we hear Jesus praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. We don't know what we're doing, but we long for good news. It's so easy to forget that your son Jesus is always good news. For this morning, we gather to encourage one another, to remove the barriers that might sour our relationships, that might keep us at a distance. We ask your Holy Spirit to remind us every day of this without ceasing, without ceasing. We ask you for the gift of hope in our heart, encouragement in our voice, and the skills of reconciliation to turn toward one another with the confidence that we hold to live a life worthy of you and your calling in every way, because we belong to you. Thank you, Jesus. And all the people of the Lord said, amen. Amen. Let's sing together.